following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. Okay, we're going to continue our series through 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is uh, we have been in 1 Corinthians since the beginning of last year. And the book of 1 Corinthians is an interesting one because it's, it's, it's broken up into five different sections. They were mainly issues that the church in Corinth was wrestling with, and they were dividing over. Chapters 1 through 4 are all about leaders. And who's the best leader? And Paul basically says, Jesus is the best leader, right? So fall underneath line with Jesus. Paul means nothing. Peter is nothing. But Jesus is everything. In chapters 5 through 7, it was issues of morality. You know, what? how should a Christian live in light of the gospel of Christ? And, and is their morality, does it matter to the gospel of Christ? And Paul's answer was yes, because your body is not your own. You belong to God. And then in chapters 8 through 10, we saw Paul deal with a division in the church about matters of food and drink. You know, what, what, are, what is appropriate for a Christian to eat or drink, and, and, and how, how does that work itself out in the church? Well, in chapter 11, we're going to jump in from chapter 11 through verse 14 about order and structure in the church gathering. Now, the church in Corinth was a unique place. They were remarkably gifted people, but it was incredibly disorderly. And the very first thing Paul's going to address is gender roles in the church. Now, what's funny is, as you look around our, our world today, the rapid pace for which our culture is changing is mind-boggling. Right? I mean, I'm, I'll be 51 next month, um, and I can tell you in the last 18 months, things have gone faster than I could ever imagine watching them. There was a day and age just a few short years ago. My dad passed away in 2018. My dad's of the Vietnam era. He served in Vietnam, um, and I can I can tell you there was a day and age in his life when if a man walked into his in my dad's room or met my dad and said, "Hi, my name is so and so, and I identify as a woman," my dad would have laughed that guy out of the room. Now, if that same thing were to happen, my dad would be seen as transphobic, as homophobic, and would be called every name under the sun. Because it was so unusual to him. It just didn't match about what it meant to be a man. That a man identifying as a woman doesn't seem to make sense. In our minds, the, 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 the battle of the sexes now, which we would call the gender debate, seems new and it seems shocking because it's moving so fast. But as we're going to see this morning, this gender debate is really centuries old. We're going to see Paul dealing with the, some very similar issues in the book of Corinthians in the first century. So as we start this morning, let me just say a few things before we we begin. Anytime we look at God's word about gender and gender roles, normally there is a negative reaction. And the normal negative reaction is usually because gender and gender roles, the truth of those spoken in scripture, are either neglected in the church or they're misused in the church or they're misapplied. So let me give you a statement here that I think will help you. A truth that is misapplied does not mean the truth is wrong. It means the application is wrong. So where there are abuses, they must be called out and they must be stopped. And where there's misapplication of a truth, it must be corrected. 
A truth that is misapplied does not mean the truth is wrong. The second thing, as I mentioned earlier, this debate is not new. What is new in the Western world is a little different than what was going on in the first century Corinthian world. We are in a day and age like never before when identification with your gender matters more in our society than it ever has. The real you is what you want it to be or what you identify as, not what is really you. Self-identification, no matter how odd that may seem, is the newest form of being truly human. So no matter how I how you think it looks or what I think, how I self-identify as and what makes me truly human. It's, it's seen as if a woman identifies as a man or vice versa. It's the highest form of being truly human and it must be widely accepted because self-identification is all that matters anymore. What I feel about myself is all that matters regardless of what society says, what the Bible says, or what you might say to me. The third thing I I think that makes this discussion really challenging, and I think really important to us, is that sadly the church, locally and even all around the world, has tried to acquiesce to the culture, rather than demonstrating something different to the culture. In a sense, the compromises in the church on issues of gender and gender roles, in an attempt to be relevant, you know, to make the gospel look like it really matters to everybody, has damaged the church's witness and credibility. And as we're going to see this morning, it's actually damaged Christ's glory. We must remember something in the church. And CLF, by God's grace, this is something I will remind you every time I'm in the pulpit, and anybody who stands in the pulpit will remind you. God has already spoken. Truth is what God says, not what I hope it will be. And the church must receive God's word as authoritative and adjust our lives to the news of what the Bible's already said on subjects like this. And then lastly, we need to realize something, and this is maybe something that might be a little foreign to you, but I think it's something you need to be thinking about as you start engaging your world more. This debate about gender, gender roles, all those things, is really about what makes somebody, a person, feel truly human. It's really what it's about. What makes me feel really alive? Is it, is it me living however I want to live, identifying with whatever I want to identify as, and you need to adjust to me, or... Is it, is it living in the God-given gender and role that God has assigned to me at birth? What makes me truly alive? That really is the challenge that you're facing in your world today. So when, you, when you're engaging with somebody who's wrestling through these issues, the issue is not just simply right and wrong. The issue is, what makes me feel the most alive? It's really the issue. Now here's what we're going to see this morning. And this will come up on the screen. This isn't in your notes. You have to write this down if you want it, but take a picture of it. Do whatever you do with it. God's word calls men and women to mutual respect. When we live in our God-given gender and roles, we will honor the other gender and be truly alive. God's word calls men and women to mutual respect. When we live in our God-given gender and roles, 
<clears throat> we will honor the other gender and will be truly alive. Now let's stand together. We're going to read a very interesting text in 1 Corinthians 11. You will probably giggle as we go because you're looking forward to hearing what I have to draw out of this. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 2. This will come up on the screen. You can follow along with me as I read. This is the reading of God's Word. It is God-breathed. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman and all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's, a, it's for her, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have given to us the genders and the roles that you have given us because they say something about you. And this morning I pray that we would not only adjust our lives to your word, but Father, you would as well reveal to us that this is the pathway to true life. Reveal to us the risen Christ and the wonder of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Now, after reading this, you're probably giggling and laughing and wondering, what in the world is Paul talking about? I mean, head coverings? Um, you're probably wondering, can guys have long hair and ladies have short hair? And what in the world do the angels have to do with any of this? I mean, we, we brought in all of the cosmic universe into one text, right? Well, you're not alone if you're wondering how challenging this text is, listen to Gordon Fee, probably the premier commentator on 1 Corinthians, when he wrote these words. Unfortunately, this is a passage so difficult for later readers that it has, de- it has defied our best scholarly guesses over the centuries. In other words, good luck, man. Good luck. So, we're going to give it a shot. And here's what you've heard me say before, Lord willing, from this pulpit. The beauty of preaching through God's Word is we cannot ignore hard things. This is a hard text. And it's difficult and challenging because of the cultural dynamics in it. And we're going to see that in this text together. But in all this difficulty, here's what you're going to notice. You're going to notice some remarkable similarities 
with first century Corinth and 21st century Western world. So let's start by looking at the first point in your outline, which is the culture in Corinth and the problem in the church. Now, the preceding chapters in 1 Corinthians, chapters 8 through 10, Paul was dealing with a a cultural issue and question in the church in Corinth. You can see that in chapter 8, verse 1, if you look in your Bibles. And it was this question, is it right for a Christian to eat meat sacrificed to an idol? And we saw in that culture that while there are few things close to the issue in our culture, we don't have temples on every backdrop of our cities that are selling meat sacrificed to idols in our in our marketplaces. But we did notice in those texts some principles that we can deduce about how to love and respect one another who have differing opinions. Especially opinions on matters where God's word is not clear or where God's word does not strictly forbid. You have the same cultural challenge when you get to 1 Corinthians 11, and you can't miss this. It has to do with head coverings, or another way to talk about this is veils. There's some, there's some ambiguity in the language that creates in you. This could be a head covering, like a veil that went over the back of the head, or a veil that went over the front of the head. It, it's, it's no different. It, it's just a cultural issue, and here's what it is. It was a culturally accepted practice in Corinth and in Rome for women, married or single, to wear a veil over their faces or a covering over their head like a shawl as a sign that a woman was respectful and she was worthy of respect and she was in submission to a husband or to her father. For married women, it was a sign that she were, she was re, she respected her husband. She belonged to him. It was a sign of her dignity, her charm, and her role. For single women, it was the same, except for her father. Yet in the culture of Rome and Corinth, there were a few challenges on the scene. Shockingly enough, there was a women's liberation movement already happening in the first century that basically said this, women are their own. They do not need to be submitted to any man, and they are independent of men, and they don't need to wear a veil or a covering that reveals that. So they encouraged a phrase, throw off the veil. Another issue in Corinth, especially, was because they had this huge temple in the backdrop that was given to immorality, they had temple prostitutes that shaved their heads bald as a sign of revealing, they of giving themselves to complete immorality and freedom from all the social constructs. So in the culture in Corinth, here's what you had. You had respectful, respectable women who wore a veil or a head covering as a sign of their femininity, of their womanhood, revealing their role, their charm, their dignity, their respect. And you also had feminists or leaders of the women's liberation movement who encouraged casting off all of the the pictures of femininity and dependence upon men and living free of these boundaries. And then he had prostitutes that went so far as shaving their heads and not wearing any veils. And so in a sense, what you're looking at when you read all this stuff about coverings and head coverings and veils is this. The clothing, listen carefully, the clothing or attire that a woman wore on her head or face revealed something about her womanhood. She was either submitted to her husband and father and seen as a dignified 
honorable woman worthy of respect, or she was throwing off that dignity and honor and removing her veil or shaving her head. Now the problem that Paul is addressing in Corinth, and the church in Corinth in particular, was that when they got together, many women who had put their trust and confidence in Jesus believed they were now free to take off these veils or these head coverings and believed that because Jesus had come, they're no longer separate gender roles or even separate genders. They could do whatever a man could do. Ever heard that lingo before? This was due to the fact that they misunderstood their freedom in Christ or they were feminists or prostitutes who had come to Christ and they weren't understanding that there were God-given genders and roles. And so you had a few issues going on in the church in Corinth in particular. You had veiled women who came to Christ in an attempt to be relevant to the culture, taking off their veils so they could minister to the prostitutes and the women's liberation movement. You had unveiled women who came to Christ not seeing any need to put on a veil. And the church somehow compromising herself on this issue in this front. And that's why Paul is addressing it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now what you see here in 1 Corinthians 11 is something really fascinating. Paul is taking a cultural practice and is shedding light on a theological truth that is being misapplied in the church in Corinth. See, if we're not careful, we're going to look at the text and we're going to pull out head coverings and veils and we're going to make that an issue and miss the truth that Paul is addressing in the text. Here's the truth he's addressing. God has ordained men and women to live in their manhood and womanhood and when they do that, they will dress, talk, live like a man or a woman. That's the truth that he is getting at. And in this text, Paul takes the veil discussion and he uses it to reveal or I'll use this unveil God's perspective on gender and gender roles. We can't miss this. See, this is not a universal command for ladies to wear a head covering or a veil. But it is a universal command and teaching on God's perspective on gender and gender roles. We can't miss that. So in, in all of our searching in this text, we can't just simply see head coverings and long hair for men is a bad deal and short hair for women is a bad deal. You can't see that. you got to see something overarching it. Paul getting to this theological truth that men are men and women are women and they're going to dress accordingly and act accordingly. Now before we move on from this, I want you to notice something Paul does in this text that I think is, is fascinating. <clears throat> When the Corinthian culture revealed God's design, women wearing a head covering is a sign of their submission, if you will. Paul told the church, receive it. And he told the church to do the same. Paul received it and he talked to him about it. Where culture deviated from God's design, the church was to reject it and reveal something completely different. The example we have before us is this. In Corinth, ladies who were respectful and respectable wore a veil. Culturally accepted norm. In our world, here's what it would look like. When ladies dress in a way that is distinctly womanly, revealing their dignity, their beauty, and their role, 
The church is to receive it as common grace given by God. For an example, ladies, I don't know of any of you, I know my wife's included in this, you don't just distinctly go looking for a Christian designer to buy your clothes from them. No, you go to the store and you're looking for something that fits with your femininity and your style. And Paul would say, where you see that going on, receive it. Embrace it. But where culture deviates from God's given, God's design, the church is to reject it and reveal something about God's design, in a sense, hoping to redeem and reveal to the culture something beautiful found in God. So here's the question that we have to ask. So in Corinth, should a lady in the church in Corinth wear a symbol on her head or covering her face to reveal her respectfulness and her respectability to her dad or to her husband? Should she wear that? In the church in Corinth, the answer would be yes. However, should a lady in Roseburg, Oregon, at Covenant Life Fellowship, do the same thing? Wear the same veil, the same covering? Does she have to do that to be right with God? The answer is no. Now, why? Well, part of the reason is because our culture does not recognize a veil or a head covering as having anything to do with being distinctly woman. But should a lady at our church or in the culture who's coming to our church, a Christian lady, should she dress in a way and reveal herself as a woman? And the answer is yes. So you can see womanly dress, and even we'll put it this way, manly dress can change from culture to culture. But the principle holds true. Where society where society honors gender and biblical gender roles and people dress in a way that reveals this, we as Christians should receive it. But where society deviates from this norm, we reject it and we reveal something totally different. And the church in Corinth, sadly like the church of the 21st America, was receiving things they should be rejecting. So that's the culture in Corinth, and the problem in the church. Now, let's look at the next point, which is respect and respectability and self-respect. Now, you'll see this throughout the text. What's hard for us when we read this text is to not put our Western minds in this text. Here's why. The Western mind functions off a guilt mindset, which basically says this. If I feel bad about it, therefore it's bad. If I feel good about it, therefore it's good. The mindset in the Eastern world was there's things that you do that are honorable or things that are dishonorable. There's things that bring glory or things that bring shame. And those normally had to do with how you interacted with somebody else, not just how you felt about it. That's a big deal. So you're going to notice what Paul does in the text. Notice this through chapter 2, verse 4 through verse 7. Verses 4 and 5, he speaks of the man dishonoring his head by covering by wearing a covering over his head when he prophesies the praise of the church. And he speaks of a woman dishonoring her head if she doesn't wear a head covering. Well, he's just dishonoring and dishonoring. To who? Verse 6, he said, if a woman chooses to not cover her head, she might as well shave her head. And that's disgraceful for her to do. Why? Because she's acting like a prostitute. Or verse 7, 
He says that a man should not cover his head because he is the image of God, the image and glory of God. There's the word glory. And the woman is the glory of a man. Now notice something fascinating as that stays up on the screen for you. Noticing that the attitude or the act that determines if something is honorable or dishonorable or that brings glory or shame is an attitude or an act that is respectful to somebody else and in submission to somebody else. Has nothing to do with how you feel about it. That's remarkably important we're going to get to in just a moment. Now this, now let's look at what Paul's getting at. Let's, let's combine verse 3 with verses 4 through 5. <clears throat> verse 3 is the key verse in the whole text. Paul said that every, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And then he follows up that with, the, with verses 4 and 5 about how a man or a woman dishonors their head. So here's how we could summarize this. If a man wears a symbol on his head like a feminine veil, he is dishonoring Christ who is his authority. Because man was not made to dress like a woman. And if a woman does not wear a symbol on her head of her femininity or her womanness, she's dishonoring her head, her husband, or her authority. Because she's not free to give herself to other men or to other styles because she's to be submissive. And to bring honor to their authority or their head, both are to dress in ways that reveal their God-given gender. The issue of veils and long hair, short hair, is all about gender. It has nothing to do with a command for you to wear that. So Paul's point is this. Self-respect or true life is not found in simply identifying with whatever gender you want or living however you desire. No, it is found in living in the gender God gave you and the role God has assigned to you because as you do that, you're honoring somebody else, not just feeling good about it. Let's take this a little farther. If you want self-respect, you respect the authority over you, and you will gain respectability from other people. It's really what Paul's getting at. This is so important to our world right now, guys. I mean, it's, it's just so practical. I mean, throughout 1 Corinthians 8 through 1 Corinthians 14, you're going to find an interesting theme. And the theme is this. True life is not found in living however you want. True life is found in loving Christ and considering others as more important than yourself. And it's going to culminate in chapter 13 about the love chapter. Think about the examples we've already seen. If you want to eat meat sacrificed to an idol, but your brother or sister comes over for dinner, do you serve them meat sacrificed to an idol? No, I consider their interests above my own. And he follows that up with getting into the church and dealing with gender rules. What's he saying? He's saying women respect men. Men respect women. We, 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 we prefer one another. We consider one another's interests. And in doing so, we're living true life. We're truly, distinctly human. Now, the reason why this is important here in this text is because Paul is instructing us as Christians, as people, as men and women, to see something. Our genders are not for us. They're not for us. 
According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, our genders are for somebody else. They're used to bring glory and honor to God and used to honor and show respect to the other gender. When people function in their God-given gender, they seek to respect others from the other gender and they gain respectability from other people. And because of that, in turn, they find self-respect or true life, the very thing they're looking for. See, if your world is seeking after self-identification makes me a true human, God's word would say, no, actually what makes you a true human is identifying yourself with what God has said about you. See, we're not truly human unless we're submitted to God and are using our God-given genders to respect the other gender. So here's what this means. This means men, you're not really men, not truly human unless you are lovingly protecting and respecting women. So an example is, you drive down the street and you see some dude whooping on a lady, and you don't get out and find something in your manhood to get up and and deal with that, you better check your masculinity. There's a problem there. God made you as a man to lovingly protect and respect women. The sin of Adam is we are passive. And then we respond in anger and crush women. But the gospel does something completely unique. It reverses us to where we begin to be loving leaders who are delicate, gentle, and respecters of women. But women, listen, this means that you're not truly a woman, not truly human, unless you are honoring and receiving and respecting true men. This is so foreign to our culture. Because our culture says... Self-respect, true life, begins with how I feel about it. Begins with me. But notice something that Paul does in the text. Self-respect begins with God. God, Christ, man, woman. Not man, woman, doing whatever they wish, identifying to be whatever they wish, and then telling God and others about that, and that brings life. No, self-respect, true life, begins with God. Respecting God and others is the best way to gain respectability from others and have self-respect. Now then, let's finish then with our last point that reveals the why of all this. What, What does Paul show us in the text that reveals why what I just showed you is true? That if you want true life, you find true life by honoring God with the God-given gender He's given you, and using your gender to serve and respect other people, and that will bring you true life. Why is that true? We're going to see this in three examples. In creation, in nature, and in the Godhead. And you'll see this in the text. The first place I want you to notice is in is in creation. Verses 8 through 11. Notice how Paul writes this. He says, man was not made, man was not made for woman, but woman from man. Now, what he's referencing is when God first made humans, he made Adam first out of the dust, and then he made Eve out of Adam's side. But then he says, man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Because after God created man, he looked around all the animals, he said, there's not a helper suitable for him, not a companion, a friend. 
somebody that he needs. And God made Eve. But, he says, men cannot come into this world without a woman giving birth to them. Every time I read, I saw the early story, every time I read this, I think of the Three Stooges when I was a kid. And I remember uh, Curly Santa Mo. You know something amazing? My mother and your mother are both mothers. We cannot come into this world without a woman giving birth to us. So, he says, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Now, here's what Paul's doing. Paul's taking Corinth, the Corinthian culture, and he's saying, I know you guys think that this is the way we do business here, but let me show you how God designed it at the beginning. Every time God talks about gender roles in the church, every time, he goes back to creation. Now, you got to ask why. Because what he's telling us is this. Gender roles are not dependent on the culture. They're dependent on how God started it. And how did God start it? How did he start it? Woman came from man. Woman was made for man. And man cannot survive without woman. They are mutually dependent on one another. They are not independent and exclusive of one another. They are to be complementing one another. Now Paul proves from creation that the gender roles... They're, that's what we call them, complementarian. They go together. Women were made to support men and care for men and help men. Men cannot survive without women. And all the dudes in the room are going, you better believe that. That ain't happening. I cannot do what I do without the woman who's beside me. And she would say the same thing. I cannot do what I do without the man who's beside me. God-given roles. When men and women live in their God-given roles and gender, you'll notice something. there's mutual respect. Now let's deal with this little phrase in verse 10, which is really odd, that a woman is to put on a head covering because of the angels. You can ask Pastor Dan Seeker or Bruce Wells about that later. They'll be at the back to talk with you. I'm just kidding. Um, no, but you could study seven different commentators. They'll all give you seven different opinions on this. Basically, what I've seen, what I think this means, is in creation... God set things up in a unique way. Angels act in submission to God. And a woman, when she puts on a veil in 1 Corinthians, lives out in her God-given gender, is submitting to authority like an angel submits to God. I think that's all he's getting. Don't make anything weird out of it. Don't come up with a brand new theology over that. If you do, we'll deal with that later. Okay? So we see from creation that God has created and ordained Authority and submission and mutual respect. But let's look at the next, the next place. It's found in nature. You'll see this in verses 13 through 15. His point is nature around you, the world around you, will show you something. That for men to wear their hair as a woman is dishonoring, and for women to wear their hair as men is dishonoring. Now we've got to be really careful here, because there's a lot of dudes in the room that have long hair, and there's a lot of ladies in the room that have short hair. So for all you dudes that have long hair, here's what you can say. So did Jesus. So Jesus, he also wore a dress. So a question would be, because he had long hair and wore a dress, does that make Jesus less than a man? No, we'd all say Jesus was the greatest man ever. He's a perfect man. He's a symbol of what manhood really is about. So what is Paul talking about here? What Paul is telling us is this. Nature and the world around you 
tells you something very clearly. When a guy dresses and wears his hair like a girl, it's unnatural. It just doesn't fit. In our world, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Recently, as I was driving up to go pick up a cup of coffee from one of the places I enjoy going, uh, dude was there, had really nice short hair. His hair looked just like a woman. It was really immaculately done. His fingernails were painted prettier than my wife's. He was wearing clothing that made him look like a lady. As he talked with me through his mask, he talked in a very feminine way. And there's something just unnatural about it. You know it, I know it. You've, you've been around it, you feel it. And it doesn't matter how accepted the norm, that norm may be, it just feels unnatural. Same thing as when a lady dresses up like a man. It just, it, it just, it's unnatural. I mean, the bottom line is a guy could have long hair and look manly or not. A lady could have short hair and look feminine or not. Nature is saying something. The world around you says some things, and you can watch it all around you. It is dishonoring and shameful. What Paul's getting at is when genders get mixed up and when gender roles don't reveal God's design. So friends, if you want to know why everything's so darn confusing right now about gender issues, it's this issue. Creation has spoken, nature is saying something, and we as humans are going, ah, oh, whatever, who cares? I, I identify and feel this way, therefore I act. And God says, it doesn't matter how you feel, it's just this honor God, does this honor the authorities over you, and, it, and does it really bring you true life? The last and most important place that Paul reveals this is in verse 3. It's in the Godhead. And this, in my opinion, is the key to the text. Paul uses the Godhead, the relationship between Jesus and God, to reveal how important roles are. And listen, that roles are found in the Godhead. See, here's what your world's going to tell you. They're going to tell you gender and gender roles are social constructs. God says, well, let's back the train up here a little bit. Let's do a little timeline. Roles began in the Godhead. Way before God ever made Adam. And then when he made Adam, he revealed the roles in the Godhead in the man and woman relationship. So God is stepping back and saying, no, before you can say it's a social construct, you must recognize the Godhead has a role. Paul is putting a definitive hole in the argument that, that authority and submission, roles and gender are made up by man. This is Paul, in a sense, taking this out and taking a shotgun and blowing that idea to smithereens and saying, you cannot have one or the other. Now, notice how he does it. Paul says, man's head is Christ. Then he says, the woman's head is her husband. Then he says, Christ's head is God. That's just fascinating. He sandwiches the man-woman relationship in between this idea. Man is submitted to Christ, we all agree. Christ is submitted to God, we all agree. What Paul is basically saying is, you can't say woman is not submitted to man and have those two things. You have to have it all. So if you want to know why we at CLF believe gender and gender roles are a gospel issue, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 is it. 
If you deny man and woman having gender and gender roles, you must deny that man must submit to Christ and that Christ submitted to God. Now that is way bigger than how I feel about it. It's way bigger than how you feel about it. If we deny authority and submission in the men's and women's roles and genders, we must deny authority and submission in man and Christ's relationship and Christ and God's relationship. And that is impossible. See, Paul uses the authority and submission of Christ and God to reveal something really amazing to us. Authority and submission or roles do not indicate value or worth. Jesus is just as worthy to be praised as God is. But they both have different roles. When Jesus came to earth, He did what the Father told Him to do. His joy was to do God's will. He was in submission to God, and God was the authority. Just like a wife in submission to her husband. Her value and worth is found in the fact that she's a human made in the image of God, and she is just as valuable as her husband, but they have a different role. Therefore, the husband should treat her with mutual respect, and she should treat him with mutual respect. And when they do that, because they do this, when they come to church, when they go out in society, they demonstrate their gender and their roles to the rest of the world, revealing we're not free to throw off our gender or our gender roles, nor do we find life in throwing them off. Rather, when we pray, we prophesize, we live, we dress in a way that reflects our gender, reflects our gender roles for the glory of God and the good of others all around us. See, Paul's argument in the text is this, that when this happens, when men and women live in their God-given gender and their God-given gender roles, guess what happens? They're truly alive. You find real life by living in your God-given gender and your God-given role. Now, it's not hard to see why this is so critical to the world you live in right now. See, the best thing you can do right now to speak to your world that's dealing with gender confusion. I mean, the statistics are off the chart. In, and I mentioned this before. In the UK, in their Transgender Institute, 20% of their patients are children ages 3 to 10. You, you, can, you cannot get into this discussion without just go think, what are, we are losing our minds. And the best thing you can do is listen, not yell at people, not get angry at people, not look, you, the best thing you do, don't look disgusted at them. Don't act put off. When that young man served me my coffee, I said, thank you, man. I so appreciate your, your care for the, my drink. I appreciate it. Put a, I put a good tip in the jar, engaged him a little bit, and went on my way because I was at a drive up. The best thing you can do, and that we can do as a church, is to live without apology, in your God-given gender and role that God assigned you the day you were born. It's the best thing you can do. And let me say something to you, CLF. One of the hallmarks of this church that I, 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 I just see as an evidence of God's amazing grace is we have strong men and we have very strong women. And I'm convinced of this, you cannot have one without the other. 
You've got to have them both. Strong men, strong women. I cannot be strong if my wife is not strong. She cannot be strong if I'm not strong. There's a mutual respect and joy that goes into that relationship that we, we reveal to the world. And you see a life, listen, we've done it really well through the years. God has been so kind to us. So here, here's the challenge. Let's do it better. Moms and dads, the best thing you can do to your children to reveal gender and gender roles is husbands love your wives and wives give yourself to your husbands. Reveal to your children the beauty of femininity and the strength of masculinity. Reveal to them how much you love each other and demonstrate before them the privilege and the joy of being truly alive in Christ and being together as one. Now listen, maybe maybe as you've listened this morning, you have realized that your attempt at being truly human, a true man, true woman, feeling truly alive, finding your identity in something other than God's design has just shot too low. It's, it's been about you. You're trying to please yourself and look relevant to everybody else around you. Maybe your sin nature is tempting you to act out in ways that are just unnatural. Maybe you're a girl wanting to be a boy or vice versa. Maybe, maybe you're battling with homosexual tendencies and challenges there. Maybe as well, you're heterosexually immoral. You're acting outside of your God-given role and function. Listen, my, my love for you and God's love for you would be to tell you that you will not find joy, happiness, true life, self-respect without submitting your life to Jesus and living in a way that God designed for you. And if that's you this morning, listen, there'll be one of our elders or more of us up front to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you if that's where you're at and you want to engage us in that dialogue. We'd love that. We want to care for you in this. Or maybe you've chafed at the role God gave you. Maybe you're a man in your home and you are struggling with respecting your wife and just thinking, if she would just submit, I would be, I would not be so angry. And you're not lovingly leading her. Maybe you're a single guy and you're not respecting and honoring women. Maybe you're a wife and you're chafing underneath the leadership of your husband and constantly trying to out, oh, you know, to come out from underneath him and just tell him how he needs to be acting all the time. He needs to get his act together. Maybe you're a single lady and you're struggling with respecting and honoring men. This text reveals to us there is power in Christ to change. We can be different. We can reveal to the world that there's no gender confusion. I mean, what I mean, there's no gender confusion with God. He did it for a reason. Men being truly men. Women being truly women. Living their lives in full abundance of life before God as they honor God and seek to respect the others. That's where you find true life. We cannot truly be alive without the power of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we recognize how hard this is because we live in such a world <clears throat> that this type of message is so awkward and strange and 
Yet we are breathing every day this issue that life begins with us rather than life beginning with God. So this morning, <clears throat> I, I pray that, that, if, that, that folks would see that true life is found in submission to God and living to respect others. And in that, they will find true life. And I pray for my Christian brothers that, that maybe, Lord, have been wrestling with respecting their wives or love, lovingly leading them, and they've been impatient or they've been passive. And I pray that you would you'd give them repentance, reveal to them their sin, and let them be different. Let them turn to Christ. I pray for my Christian sisters that, that maybe are wrestling with the leadership of their husband and how they can serve him when they just are agitated by him constantly. And I just pray you'd care for them. I pray that you would reveal to them the power of Christ and, and the need to live in their God-given gender and turn them to repentance. But Father, I pray for us. I, I pray that CLF would not just have, continue to have a hallmark of strong men and strong women, but Father, that we would, we would embrace it with joy, without apology. That we would display to the world what it means to be truly alive, whether in our manhood or in our womanhood. So, Father, would you, would you graciously work in us that which is pleasing in your sight? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.